Colossians chapter 4, as we return this morning and verse, verse 10, verses 10 and 11, we're looking at. We looked last week at a explanation, I suppose, what how Paul was getting this letter that he was writing from Rome to a church in Colossae, some thousand or so miles distant. And here we have greetings, a greeting from a man named Aristarchus, a greeting from a guy named Mark, another greeting from a guy named Jesus, not the Jesus you're thinking of. And the amazing thing is that each of these, as we'll see in this text, are Jewish believers. They are believers uh, in Christ, the Messiah, uh, Yeshua Mashiach, the Jesus the Messiah, who are from a Jewish ancestry, and even not just ethnically Jews, but religiously Jews. They have been circumcised, and they are uh, obedient to the law and these kinds of things. Let us read, actually, just these two verses, verses 10 and 11, and then we'll look at them carefully here as we go along. It says here, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. Whereas we saw probably, most likely, Tychicus and uh, Onesimus are, are probably not Jewish. They're probably Gentile believers. Uh, here we see Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who are Jewish people. And so we see a grouping. The first two guys are, are Gentile. The next three are Jewish. Uh, the next bunch of folks that he mentions, beginning in verse 12, with Epaphras, or Epaphras uh, and Luke, of course, probably Gentile. The point is... You don't need to be concerned with Jewish or Gentile anymore. Remember back in, in Colossians 3 and verse 11, I think it was, it says there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ is where it's at. Christ is the one we ought to be concerned with, not our ethnicity, not our religious expression. These guys who are Jewish believers, wonderful. They greet you, probably a predominantly Gentile church, which is an encouragement to them. Hey, Colossian brothers, you don't need to be working your salvation out through law-keeping, through circumcision, through the you know, self-abasement and the worship of angels and special knowledge. No, look to Christ. Be satisfied in him. We see with each of these men a measure of, and it is startling to see in, in each of these men, a measure of friendship to Paul, a level of camaraderie that is even without equal in, in some respects, we'll see. It is a an intention on fellowship and shared work. These are men, as Paul says, these are the only ones from the circumcision who are workers with me, my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And so we see a, a shared work. We see also that these three men, all three of them, have proved to be a comfort or a consolation. How to say here? Um, the end of verse 11, be a comfort to me, right there. And that word we'll see uh, means a comfort, a relief, a, a support, a succor, uh, just a, an immense aid to Paul. Paul, of course, has been in prison, been, been under arrest for uh, probably at this point four or five years, coming to the end of that first Roman imprisonment. But Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus are right with Paul in his, in his imprisonment which we just read, you realize we just finished reading through Acts. And Paul, the tremendous verses there at the end of Acts, Paul is there under house arrest in Rome, having just preached the gospel to the Jewish people there in Rome. This is where he is in prison, having written probably, well, not at that point by the end of Acts 28, but in that imprisonment, he wrote to the Colossian church. But he says, 
He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming or receiving all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. That's Paul's motive. And there's Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus along with him in that important work. Not very many others, as we read earlier in that text, not very many others of the Jewish people in Rome embraced the gospel, embraced Jesus as the Christ, and yet Aristarchus did. What do we know about this guy, Aristarchus? Well, a few things, uh, that he was an important fellow. He's Jewish, of course, we just established that, but he has been a long-standing associate of Paul, probably at this point five or six years he has been with Paul. He is a native of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia. Macedonia, of course, is... is uh, northern part of Greece, northern, northern Aegean Sea is one of the first places that Paul entered or went to as part of his second missionary journey. Remember, he came in, went to Philippi, went a little bit farther west, came to Thessalonica, and man, things kind of fell apart rather quickly over there. Went to Berea, and things weren't good over there. Went to Athens, Acts 17, and then Corinth eventually. But Aristarchus was there. He's a native of Thessalonica. You can see that in Acts 20 and verse 4. Aristarchus of the Thessalonians, and he is traveling with Paul. Remember that Paul sent a, or was gathering up a special offering for the church back in Jerusalem, the Jewish, predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, saying, hey, this is from your Gentile brothers across the uh, the Mediterranean world, Asia Minor, and, and even uh, Macedonia, and, and Achaia, and, and other places like that. This is a love gift from us because we know you're going through hard times. It's a famine over there in Jerusalem. Plus, you have a lot of opposition from the Sanhedrin, people casting you out of the synagogue and everything. This is a gift of love. And he was, Paul was carrying that offering, that gift, back to Jerusalem. And it says, as I mentioned, Acts 20 and verse 4, Paul was accompanied by others, traveling mates, Sopater, um, of Berea, son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and others, Timothy and Tychicus, that we learned about last time. He went along that path. This was about AD 56. A few years later, Paul is has been in prison in Caesarea for a few years. Alex, excuse me, Aristarchus is probably with him, probably with Paul during that time, because when the voyage happened from Caesarea back over to Rome in Acts 27, there is Aristarchus. They got aboard this particular ship, and it was gone to sail to Asia. And we, Paul and Luke and others, set sail accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. We see this guy. We don't know much about him other than he's Jewish. He's from Macedonia. Uh, he's, he's just a traveling mate, a loyal fellowship, fellow friend of of Paul willing to suffer hardship. I mean, it wasn't a happy time. It wasn't a, hey, let's take a Mediterranean cruise kind of a thing, which is, you can buy that today. It was, you had to pay for that journey. You had to, you had to endure. You had to find a different ship and, and different ships to go along the, the okay, this will take you here, but then you need that boat to get you over here. And well, then you have to wait because there is no other boat coming. So you have to wait and you have to provide for your own meals. This was a commitment to uh, kind of a hardship, kind of a hard dealing. And Aristarchus is right with him that whole time. Here, Aristarchus is with Paul in Rome. So that traveling from Caesarea to Rome, Aristarchus was there and now is with Paul in Rome. Notice what it says, what it says about Aristarchus here, that he is my fellow prisoner. My fellow prisoner. Not that he is my prisoner. He, Paul didn't, you know, imprison him or arrest him or anything. But voluntarily, 
Aristarchus said he cast his lot with Paul. I'm with him. Wherever he goes, I'm going. I'm going to be his helper, going to minister to his needs. Very similar to Tychicus, as we learned about last time. Aristarchus is there. He didn't have to be in Rome. He didn't have to be subject to that house arrest. He didn't have to be subject to the indignities of, of Roman imprisonment and so forth. But he willingly laid down his life to be loyal, to be a support, a fellow worker, a helper, an enabler of Paul's ministry. And it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. This man, this word, by the way, fellow prisoner, almost has the connotation not so much of a prisoner for the sake of having committed a crime, but more like a prisoner of war, somebody who's been captured as a result of conflict or combat. And you, and you think, well, Paul wasn't really in a combat. He wasn't in really in a physical war like that. No, but he says, we are in a war. We're in a spiritual battle. And Aristarchus viewed himself as one who is a, a captive of a war, a spiritual conflict that is going on and willingly cast his, his future with Paul. A tremendous a loyalty, a tremendous uh, camaraderie that Aristarchus had. Well, it's not the only one that he mentions here. Mark also gets in on this greeting. Everybody says, hey, um, Aristarchus says hi to y'all. And so does Mark. And so does Jesus, who's called Justice. They're sending their greetings. They're sending their uh, salutations, their, their well wishes, their, their good um, friendship and offerings of, of love and kindness to them. And it, again, it's a, it's a support, not just to Paul, but to the Colossian church, realizing that they're not alone. They don't need to be swept aside by the false teachers that are over there trying to woo them to their side. No, you've got people who are in the gospel, in Christ, in the truth of the gospel, and they are celebrating the work, the kingdom of God, and you don't need to be swept aside by, by other false teaching. Uh, the second one that we see here mentioned in verse 10 is the fellow named Mark. Mark, and identified here as the cousin of Barnabas. Well, okay, we need to back up a little bit. Barnabas is one of those fellows that we meet in Acts, several times in Acts. Barnabas is uh, appears back in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is. Uh, Acts chapter 4, at the very end, it talks about Joseph, a Levite. So he's Jewish, right? the tribe of Levi, but he lives in Cyprus. So he's of Cyprian birth. Cyprus is the island uh, in the very extreme eastern Mediterranean Sea. And he was called Barnabas, or son of encouragement. His name is Joseph, of course, but everybody calls him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And you can read about that in Acts 4, about how he sold a field and gave the proceeds uh, to the apostles for distribution. But we read about Barnabas and his important role, especially as the church was gathering uh, uh, speed and growing and increasing, and how he was particularly active in getting Paul and bringing him into the apostolic band or the group of apostles. Acts 9 and verse 27 talks about Barnabas took him, Saul, Paul, and brought him to the apostles in Jerusalem and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that Jesus had talked to him and how Damascus, Paul, had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is there really getting things going for Paul and, and making some arrangements, uh, getting him into that fellowship. Barnabas is spoken of highly by Paul uh, a lot of different times. Of course, he's the first traveling companion of Paul on the first missionary journey. Barnabas is there, and even Barnabas is the spokesman, right? whole situation there in Lystra, I think it was, kind of the confusion of Paul and Barnabas being Zeus and Hermes and nasty wickedness going on there. But Barnabas and Paul were tight. So when Mark is mentioned here as the cousin of Barnabas, we realize, oh, that, that's the Barnabas. Paul had a good relationship, but then actually he didn't. What happened with that falling out? 
Well, the second missionary journey happened, remember? This guy, Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas, was on that team going from, from Antioch in, in Syria up to Asia Minor. Um, the city in Antioch they landed in, and then, of course, farther up into Lystra and Antioch, uh, Derby and the other city. Anyway, I don't remember right now. And he is there ministering, and yet Mark abandoned them. He left them. He, the word is apostatized. Now, he didn't apostatize the faith, but he just abandoned his co-workers, left them, went back to his hometown, probably back to Jerusalem. Now, that ended up being a falling out then. When, when uh, Barnabas said, hey, let's bring Mark on the second missionary journey, Paul said, no way. He who abandoned us in the, in the ministry of the gospel, we're not taking him. And such a sharp disagreement arose that Barnabas took Mark and went, to his own, their own mission, and Paul joined up with a guy named Silas, and they went off and did their second missionary journey, and that's when they ended up going into Macedonia and, and other places. So Barnabas and Paul kind of had a falling out, but here, some, what is it, uh, 10, well, not 10 years later, some, several years later, we see that this, this uh, mark is spoken of rather highly. Hey, Mark and Barnabas spoken of highly, not, oh, it's that cousin of that so-and-so. No, there is a restoration somehow of that fellowship, not but just between Paul and Barnabas, but between Paul and Mark. And now we realize, whoa, this guy Mark is useful, uh, and we'll see more about him in just a moment. But Barnabas kind of fades from the scene. There's a little drama in Galatians 2. You can read about Paul and, and Barnabas and even Peter and Gentiles and Jewish and food and all that kind of stuff. So there was another sharp uh, disagreement between them. And you hear Paul is speaking very highly of them and, and uh, emphasizing that camaraderie, that friendship, that joint effort, that shared work that they have in the gospel, in specifically preaching the kingdom of God. Mark, there is an interesting issue about Mark that we don't hear, we don't see his name. And yet, uh, just to, I don't want to belabor the point, but just to give you a little bit of history on that. Do you remember back in that Passion Week time, that night that, that Jesus took bread and shared it and took the cup and shared it, Jesus was having that meal in an upper room, uh, a guest room, some kind of just an upper room of, of a house. And after that meal was over, he and his disciples left. Of course, Judas had left, and I don't want to get all the history of that, how that explains it all. But J Jesus left. Judas, having left to go get the, uh, the, the um, policemen, the soldiers to arrest Jesus, came back to that house expecting Jesus to be there because Passover meals last well into the evening and probably just sleep right there. But the house was empty. And so Judas said, I know where he is. And then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where Jesus had been spending the night the rest of the week most of the rest of the week there, that Passion Week, and that's where they found him. Now, the interesting thing is in Mark chapter uh, 15, I think, yes, no, 14, Mark 14, this is a detail only recorded by Mark, which is probably the same Mark mentioned here, right? This is the same Mark. Mark's gospel, the author is Mark. Here's a guy not named, but this is a detail only represent, only recorded in this gospel. Mark chapter 14 says, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled from the free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And you think, do we really need to know that? It's probably Mark, because it talks about, in, the, in this context, Mark is the son of Mary who dwelt in Jerusalem. It's probably that house that they had the Last Supper in. 
And it's probably Mark who was there, not part of the, the Last Supper time, but, but knew, kind of was woken up by all the, all the soldiery coming to his house looking for Jesus, and he wasn't there, was woken up, grabbed the first thing he could find, which was a sheet, mercy, and, and followed out there, and the rest you can read about here. Mark is the only one who records that because he wanted to insert himself, not by name, but by at least affinity and embarrassment. Another example of his running away from the Lord, running away from the mission, running away from the work of the gospel. And yet here we read, Mark is this cousin of Barnabas, and Paul has an endorsement. I told you about him. In fact, I gave you a command, Colossian church. If he comes to you, don't close your doors. Open them widely. To him. Get him on in here. Support him in his work. There are other aspects in, in the life of Mark that we could read about, but one other thing is in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the end letter, the last letter that Paul wrote, for 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, Paul mentions Mark, and he has, again, comforting, hopeful, life-giving word, words. It is interesting, by the way. Mark is the second one he's mentioned here in these, this group of three. Onesimus was mentioned before. Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon, but now is coming back as a believer. Mark ran away, not just that time in Jerusalem, but then in that time in, in Asia Minor, and has now returned. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, pick up Mark, not like physically lift him, but get him and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful life change? This one who was faithless now is has proven his loyalty, not just to me, Paul, but to the gospel and to the kingdom of God. And so he says to the, to the Colossian church, I told you once, now we don't know exactly how did Paul give this commandment, this command to the Colossian church? Was it by letter? Another emissary going over the hay, if, if Mark comes, receive him. But somehow he gave the church a command to receive Mark if and when he comes to him. There's one other aspect, and I should maybe close the loop about that. Why is, why is the gospel of Mark called and written by the gospel? Why is it written by Mark? He wasn't an apostle. Uh, he was a young man, probably in that time of the Passion Week and, and so forth. Probably because, so we have Matthew, we have Matthew and Luke, excuse me, Matthew and John, there we go, our apostles, they wrote their gospels, but Mark and Luke were not, not even close to Christ during that time. Luke, we can read about, uh, first chapter, first couple verses, talks about his research and, and writing. I, you know, he interviewed people and wrote it all down in, in a, a consecutive or, or a structured order. But what about Mark? Where did he get his information? Well, being in Jerusalem, he was privy to certain things, but 1 Peter 5 and verse 13 says that Mark was a close associate, not just of Paul, but of Peter. Peter, the Apostle Peter. And so much so that Peter refers to him as my son. First Peter 5 and verse 13. Point being, a lot of what is recorded in Mark's gospel are the personal reflections and remembrance of Peter. And so we see a lot of overlap between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there are some things that Mark records differently and um, kind of alternating. There's a whole history of that, trying to understand that synoptic uh, issue. The point is, Mark was useful not just to Paul, but to Peter. Pillars of the church, wow! And Mark was right there, mentioned here, and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. And so if that church was to receive, or to, to have him come, receive him, celebrate him, help him, support him, give him some food, give him some, some uh, uh, resources for his journey, he is the cousin of Barnabas, so however that family relationship worked out, whose, whose son was he, uh, and so forth, doesn't matter. The point is, this is somebody who, whom Paul thought highly of and wanted the church also to receive and, and share with. 
The last person we see here in verse 11 is Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, as with Mark, and I should have mentioned this too, Mark has two names, John Mark. In fact, that's my brother-in-law's name, John Mark. And he is has a Hebrew name and a Greek or Hellenized or, or Romanized name. So John is his, is his Hebrew name. Mark is his uh, Hellenistic or, or Latin name. It goes by both, kind of like Shaul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Hellenized name. Shaul Paul, Shaul Paulus, if you want to be specific. But he, so these different people would have different names. He's called Mark here, called, called uh, John Mark elsewhere. Same with Jesus. Jesus is his Hebrew name, Jewish name, Justice or um, there is no J. You don't say J in Latin, right? You know that. So you call Jesus in Greek and Eustace in in uh, in Greek. So he has a Hellenized Hebrew name, Jesus, and a Greek name, Justice. Point is, it's not Jesus Christ. This guy, hey, Jesus says hi. Well, I hope so, but this is a different Jesus. And he, this is the only place we... We learn about this guy, Jesus. Jesus called Justice, his, his, and we don't know anything about, else about him. Justice might have reference to the fact, again, he's Jewish, so it might have reference to the fact that he is a righteous, law-abiding kind of a fellow. Maybe not any longer, right? Paul was law-abiding to the degree that he, was, he thought it appropriate and prudent, depending on which audience was in. Not that he, not that he was a chameleon like what was going on in Galatians 2, but, but this guy, Jesus, was a fine, upstanding fellow. He was a good a good person that was a co-worker of Paul. And the point is there, you can be a no-name, you can be a, a one-off person mentioned in Scripture, by the way, and still be part of this wonderful, eternal plan of God in bringing the gospel to all kinds of people. Jesus, who is called Justice, is part of the one who says, hey, you Colossian brothers over there from Rome, maybe a native of Rome, I don't know. One of the very few, in fact, Paul says here at the end of of verse 11. He says here at the end of verse 11, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Those who are Jewish brothers in Christ, that's all I have right now. It's not to say that they were his only workers at all. I mean, we see Tychicus, we see Onesimus, we see in just a moment Epaphras, uh, we see um, Luke and Demas and uh, other people. Timothy, of course, would help to write this letter. So it's not just that, that these are the only people I have. No, these are the only Jewish brothers I have working with me at this particular moment. Be careful how, how it's kind of awkwardly stated in, the, in his original language. But, but the point is, these are the only Jewish brothers he has working with him at that particular moment. Paul, as we studied back with Tychicus and Onesimus, Paul closely associated himself with lots of individuals carrying forward the gospel, carrying forward this work. He says, these are my fellow workers. These are guys who have put on the yoke. They're bearing it with me. They are working together with me for the advancement of this news, this gospel of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the salvation that is available through Christ, the future and, and coming rule and reign of Christ on earth, of the new heavens and new earth. All these things are being spoken of. The warning of wrath. When Christ comes, there will be blessing for those who are in Christ and, and cursing and despair and woe for those outside of Christ. They're preaching this gospel. And so uh, Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus are, uh, Jesus Justice is there uh, preaching this gospel. It says here at the very end of verse 11 that they have proved to be a comfort to me. Paul says, I've had a hard time. Uh, you know, my life as an apostle, it's not been all that uh, impressive, not all that dignified, not all that uh, happy and peaceful and restful and all that honorable. And yet 
these guys. These have, these have been, these are, these are classic, classic fellas. And he says, they are a comfort. They are a help. They are a consolation to me. Paul says, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, he, he says, I don't want to boast, but let me just tell you what I have faced. And by the way, what Aristarchus, having traveled with him so much, and these other fellows as well, uh, he says, Second Corinthians 11, um, verse 23, for example, we just pick it up there. It says, um, I have been in far more labors, more imprisonments, beatings without number, frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I spent in the deep. Been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in desolate. This could make a good children's story, right? Like Green Enix in Ham or something. Dangers in desolate places, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship and many sleepless nights and starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. And then as we looked at earlier, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is made to stumble without my burning concern? And he goes on and talks about his weakness and so forth. The point is, Paul needed comfort. He needed consolation. He needed the help and assistance. He was under house arrest. He couldn't go out and buy his groceries. He couldn't, you know, wash his clothes outside. He, he had to, he had to have helpers. And these men, Aristarchus and Mark and, and Justice, are there helping, uh, uh, being a an assistant uh, assistance to him. He says, "These only; these are my only fellow workers from the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God, from the circumcision, and they have proven to be. They have." proven time and again. Without question, they are a help to me. In fact, that word comfort, it really has the emphatic uh, location in this verse. It's, it's the very last word, and, and he says they are a, a means of God ministering his grace and, and provision to me through them. And it's just amazing that Paul was so closely associated with them, these Jewish brothers, and others as well in his ministry. The point then it comes back to us that we should have that same kind of uh, fellowship, loyalty, one to another, the same kind of receptivity or, or receiving one another. We sang it earlier that we are, we God receives us into his arms, into his presence, and we ought to receive one another. We ought to be very careful to have a, a compassion, a kindness, a love, a, a hospitality, one to another, such that even when uh, we're maybe busy or we have other things going on, that we take time to speak to one another, to listen to one another, that we are active in serving, looking for ways that we can meet needs of other people. It could be very practical, like, okay, it's springtime. I was going to say shoveling somebody's sidewalk. You don't do that so much in the springtime, but uh, getting the pollen off your car, right? Now, that'd be something to do right now. Look for ways that you can serve one another. Paul, it's kind of obvious. He's in prison and shackles. How can I serve Paul? Oh, I know. I can get him some food. I can get him some water. I can wash his, his uh, tunic or whatever. I, I know what I can do. Look for ways that you can show that kindness, that loyalty. Look for ways that you can work together for the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God that is not through eating and drinking, but through love and joy and peace. Showing this is that that's what characterizes God's kingdom. It's totally different from what we see celebrated in the world about selfishness and me and I want more. I'm going to fill myself with this. But having this selflessness, uh, an others-centered focus upon other people. Paul had it when he's talking about these, these guys, Aristarchus and Mark and, and Jesus. He's just so thankful for their partnership in the gospel, their involvement and their devotion to him personally. We can have that same uh, tremendous, life-changing, eternal, eternally um, 
minded perspective toward one another, serving one another in love for the sake of the kingdom. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. And these men that we are hearing about, don't know a lot about a lot of them, and yet you are the one who's active in all of our lives, even reading and, and uh, well, just reading through genealogies, lists of names, and we think, who are these people? What do I care about them? They are in your word, and you take special note of them, and you know all of our situations. You're very intimately concerned with each one of us. Please help us to be concerned, not not getting into each other's businesses and being gossips and that kind of thing, but or busybodies, but but being certainly compassionate and kind and, and concerned for others, one another's well-being. Please help us to grow in our love and our service, our loyalty, certainly in our partnership with the gospel, for the gospel. We're so grateful that we have a redemption in Christ that makes this even possible and, and exciting that we can live for Christ and live in Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us where former differences and distinction, Jew and Gentile and so forth, used to be a big deal. It's not anymore. Christ is what matters and Christ is our sufficiency and our Savior, our Supreme Lord and our protector and our friend. Please help us to live that way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.